0: hi and thanks for listening to a little more conversation i'm ben o'hara byrne tonight we find out more about a new juno center project to remind canadians of the hundreds of soldiers who died fighting in the raid on dieppe in france 80 years ago this week through something they call they Live where you live we look into india as it celebrates 75 years of independence as both a time to celebrate the many advances that have been made in that country as the fastest growing major economy in the world but also where critics say the country is turning its back on the ideals of secularism, tolerance, and respect for civil liberties. We find out how the Inflation Reduction Act signed by President Biden today may be good news for Canadian businesses and spur Canada into producing more critical minerals needed for clean technologies. But first, we look at how much relief Canadian consumers got in July as inflation eased somewhat. It turns out we got relief on gas prices, but not much else. Perhaps some encouraging news for all of us who've been struggling through these high inflation rates, this high consumer price index over the past little while. New numbers out today confirm something you may have already noticed if you filled up recently, a fall in the price of gas is easing pressure on household budgets just a little bit of late. StatsCan reported that the annual rate of inflation slowed to 7.6% in July, down from over 8% in June, and that followed a similar story uh, in U.S. inflation numbers that were released last week. Here's TD Chief Economist Bieta Kerenci.
1: The one price that's very observable that people react from a sentiment perspective is gasoline prices because you need it just for every day, everything, work, shopping, everything.
0: That's the good news. The picture isn't quite so rosy when it comes to putting food on the table. Food prices rose almost 10% compared to a year ago. That's the fastest pace since August of 1981. And if you happen to be a renter, Well, you may know this already, but average monthly rental costs also continue to rise quickly. Overall, the consumer price index was up just 0.1% compared with June. That's the smallest gain since last December. So maybe things are easing just a little bit, or are they? So what is driving these numbers? What does it mean for you, the consumer? And what now heading into the fall? To help me answer those questions and more is Amy Pung. She's an associate professor at the Department of Economics at Toronto's Metropolitan University. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: So uh, I think a lot of people, after what we saw out of the U.S. last week, I think there was a prediction that we might see something similar to what we saw today for July inflation. But what are those numbers telling you?
1: Well, the numbers telling us we're probably following the same trend as in the U.S. So the good news is inflation, um, it looks like inflation may have peaked. So, you know, it's driven by the, you know, the slower growth of the gasoline price. So the U.S. moved from 9.1% to 8.5%, and we moved from 8.1% to 7.6%.
0: And really, the gas prices is what's really uh, what's noticeable here, I guess, for consumers. eh? And and it has such a huge impact. It's always, you know, it's always strange to to realize just what an impact gas prices has on inflation, especially these days, obviously.
1: Yeah, because the, the gas is you know, cost of production uh, on most of the goods and services we consume. But at the same time, it also uh, drives uh, the household, right, the cost of running a household as well. So, um, but unfortunately, the deceleration of inflation this time is really the just the, the because the slower year-over-year growth in gasoline price. But if you're taking out of the gasoline, so the, the price actually rose Six point six percent year over year in July, which is actually zero point one percent higher compared this June. So,
2: it's which means,
1: rate, yeah, which really means that the up upward pressure, you know, on prices still there. So, so this is what you said at the beginning. People probably still feel it, you know, in the, uh, the food, groceries, travel, rent, and everything else.
0: So, what is driving? Uh, is that just Something is it take longer for those prices to adjust? To anything falling, or are those going to continue to rise? Do you think? Uh, what are we seeing in terms of a trend?
1: Um, what we're seeing is so many of the global factors that I'm sure many people have known or talk about that push up inflation. They won't go away quickly enough. So we see there's still supply chain disruptive. Uh, there's still geopolitical tensions are high. There's still wars, right? And the commodity prices are volatile, so there are still so many uncertainties. So the price um, uh, on the supply side, right, so there's still a lot of uncertainty. And on the demand side, because our economy are running, well, a lot of people may be thinking, compared with last year, is running hot. So we're enjoying a fully reopened economy. Uh, people want to buy more goods and services than our economy can produce. Uh, businesses also have trouble keeping up with the demand, also because of supply shortages, which leading to delays and higher prices.
0: When it comes to something like food, I mean, traditionally, I, I, this is probably mistaken, but all, I always thought that in the summer, especially in a country like Canada, that food prices would come down a bit just because we grow more of what we eat and so forth uh, and don't import as much, but that doesn't seem to be the case either. Not at all.
1: No, not at all. So the food going gone up 9.9%. Bakery thirteen point six percent based on uh, the number uh produced by statscan today, right? So those may be driven wow. yeah. Mm. <laughs> those are maybe driven by the, the, the just the average weight price due to the you know the war with Ukraine and they are the twenty five percent. So Ukraine Ukraine produces twenty five percent of the wheat in the world. Right. So that I, that's I, part of it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then uh beverage nine point five, sugar nine point seven Eggs uh fifteen point eight fruits twelve percent and coffee and tea um thirteen point eight so everything we eat and drink on daily basis are still way above ten percent
0: and and they and they grew fast in in July as well, so no relief yep
1: no, so this is why when we're actually looking at consumer price index when we're excluding the gasolines. Uh, the trend is still going up. It was 6.5% in June and 6.6% in July.
0: So it's no wonder that most of us aren't really noticing. I mean, these numbers might bring a little bit of comfort. Gas prices, as you mentioned, are important in any household. Uh, but everything else, uh, no relief there. So so the whole point of the Bank of Canada raising interest rates is to try to cool demand and get inflation back under control. Uh, has it started to work yet?
1: Well, I think it worked. We see it in the housing market immediately, right? So the housing market has cooling off. And then the related area as well, we see, you know, uh, home decoration, construction, furnitures, appliances, and also extended to clothing, tools, uh, sporting goods, entertainment products. Those things have slowed down or cooled off, actually. However, like we talk about the the, the day-to-day items, so the food, groceries, the travel costs, the rent costs, the home affordability, those hasn't really been changed much.
0: Uh, I I know you don't have a a crystal ball on this, but are we looking at the rest of 2022 being pretty much the same? Will we see any sort of slowing down of these big jumps or can we expect, uh, you know, you said earlier, perhaps interest rates have peaked, but certainly we, uh, not interest rates, but inflation rather. Uh, But we certainly haven't seen that for a lot of stuff. Do you you see this continuing to rise through the rest of the year? Are we in for a really tough fall?
1: So... What I see is the Bank of Canada actually have a third quarter forecast. They forecast around 8% inflation. So uh, I think most of the forecasters from major banks, as well as economists, thinking we're not going to go 8%. We're probably going to undershoot that number. But the inflation is going to stay. It's like, you know, uh, the Bank of Canada has a core inflation target of 2%. We're not going back to 2% anytime soon.
0: I'm speaking with Amy Pung. She's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at Toronto's Metropolitan University. We're talking about new uh, inflation data out today that showed the annual rate of inflation slowing just a bit in uh, in July compared to June. We saw that in the U.S. as well with data last week. Uh, But as Amy's explaining, a lot of that, uh, other than gasoline prices uh, for the average Canadian, you're not really going to notice it because a lot of prices for the things that we buy every day Continue to rise. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about interest rates. Uh, I gather the Bank of Canada will continue on its path to raise interest rates, considering it, that uh, this has not, not yet had its desired effect. And also, just some of the pressures we could see because gasoline prices may not stay low for long. What might that do? That's next. Amy Pung is our guest this half hour. We're talking about inflation. She's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at Toronto's Metropolitan University. Um, so inflation slowed a little bit in the month of July, which is good news, mainly due to gasoline prices, which is also good news for Canadian consumers. Uh, Amy, how much did the? do you have any concept of how much taxes had to do that We've seen some, some cuts in gasoline taxes across the country. Did that have an impact at all? I, I couldn't tell by looking no, at the numbers. No, I think...
1: Yeah no I I really think this time is really because the crude oil price has gone down so from um you know um um has you know globally also because of slower demand uh, globally China had um uh, travel restricts and uh, regional lockdowns along with uh, US there's a forecast of slowdown of the economy so the slowdown on the gasoline demand overall I don't think the tax really plays uh, much more role here in this case.
0: So in that case, when we look, at w- for, look forward to the fall, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know where energy prices are going to go this fall. We're reading about uh, possible shortages in the UK, in Germany, in the European, elsewhere in the European Union. We could be in to see gas prices rise again, in which case the consumer price index would go back up, or I mean, at least inflation would be back up.
1: No, we are kind of thinking the inflation may be picked, and at this point, we're looking for some kind of ease, especially in travel restrictions, local, um, you know, uh, lockdown restrictions, uh, things related to, um, you know, the pandemic. Um, some of the restrictions may be eased up, and that will solve some of the supply chain disruptions. So that that will actually improve the supply side. Um, um, the other factor which many of us may actually not think about is um, in, in U.S. and Canada, both, actually Canadian particularly, our labour market has performed really strongly, especially in July. I actually checked the number today. So we have record low unemployment rate of 4.9%. And employment seems have strong numbers. Uh, labour compensations has has grown as well. So the average... Hourly wage has gone up by about five point two percent,
0: and that I guess is another factor that's at play here. We see a lot of government unions looking for for uh, yes. for, for wage yes. hikes. That wages yep. uh, could also add to inflation if, in fact, uh, we start to see uh, higher wage wage increases that start to outpace inflation.
1: Yes absolutely so um so over here in ontario so the union the teachers union are in negotiation with the provincial government they're looking at over 10 percent increases which is the we never have seen this number before so this is really because they were considering you know uh the inflation being so high so of course people going to look at um you know the catch-up right so when when the the labour compensation is going to catch up with the purchasing power, in, in in this case particularly.
0: Right. So I guess in a nutshell, if we look at these July numbers and put them into context over what we've seen over the last several months, that uh, things are easing slightly, but we're certainly not out of the woods yet when it comes to these high prices no. we're trying to get used to.
1: Yeah. So I think it's going to stay for a while. So then if you look at, uh, you know, today's news, um, so Governor of Bank of Canada has uh, said it, we're determined to eliminate high inflation and return to our 2% target. So, therefore, we know that it's very highly likely that, the you know, the Bank of Canada going to going to follow the Federal Reserve Bank um, to hike another 75 basis points. It's highly likely. Well, that's just my, my point. No, I, 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 point. I, yes.
0: I think a lot of people agree with you on that one. Amy Punk. thank you so yeah. much for your time tonight. No problem. On Friday, Canada will honour the more than 900 soldiers killed in what was one of the deadliest battles in Canadian military history. On August 19, 1942, 6,000 soldiers, mostly Canadian, landed on the coast of then heavily occupied a Nazi stronghold of Dieppe. It would prove to be a disaster. Um, I was there actually for the 70th anniversary 10 years ago now. And, and one veteran who was there at the time uh, told me they were sitting ducks. When they went in. Of the 4,963 Canadians who went in that day, only 2,210 returned to Great Britain, including 614 wounded. In fewer than 10 hours of fighting, 807 Canadians died. 100 more would later succumb to their wounds back in Great Britain or die in captivity because nearly 2,000 Canadians became prisoners of war. There will be the customary ceremonies to honor all those who fought and all those who never came home later this week. But the Juneau Beach Centre, Canada's Second World War Museum and cultural centre located in Normandy in France, also has a new exhibition called From Dieppe to Juneau. And the centre is also trying to remind all of us about who fought and died that day. So they undertook, as a side project, undertook a research project to see where those who had died had lived in this country, back in Canada, and tried to see if there was a contemporary address, all part of something they called, they lived where you live. And it involves sending a postcard to those who live at the address now. With me, with more on the project, joining me now is Alex Fitzgerald Black. He's Executive Director uh, of the Judo Beach Center Association. Thanks for your time tonight. What a great project. Ben, it's a pleasure to be here with you. So, for listeners who uh who may not be entirely or perhaps need reminding every anniversary of just the significance of the Battle of Dieppe, uh it was always known as one of the deadliest days in Canadian military history, one of the deadliest battles in Canadian military history rather uh obviously important for you to to commemorate
3: it
4: absolutely the Juno Beach Center uh over in france it's not just a d day museum we cover the entirety of Canada's story during the Second World War, and so it was really important to us. You know, especially with Dieppe just a couple of hours down the coast, that we commemorated the Dieppe raid in a significant way this year. And as you said, you know, this is the darkest day of Canada's Second World War. Uh, between 800 and 900 Canadians were killed in just over really eight to ten hours, uh, which is just absolutely shocking. You know, back then, a much smaller country, not <laughs> geographically necessarily, but in terms of population, and so. It was quite a shock eventually when news filtered back with uh, the casualty figures from that day.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I covered the 70th anniversary there, and it is, it is a very sombering spot. And when you talk to the veterans just about how chaotic and how deadly that day was, how did you land on the He Lived Where You Lived program?
4: So we'd actually done something similar to this uh, back in 2019 for the 75th anniversary of D-Day in the Battle of Normandy, but more specifically for Dieppe, um, the Juno Beach Center, we worked on an exhibit called "From Dieppe to Juno," which is currently on at the Juno Beach Center. And one of the zones in the exhibition is about uh, propaganda, but but more broadly speaking, you know, the reaction to the raid. Um, and one of the things we wanted to impart upon our visitors, many of whom are European is just how widespread this, you know, military disaster was in terms of its impact across Canada. And so we did a little bit of research into, um, you know, charting each unit, um, or at least the garrisons, like where the units were raised, you know, Hamilton for the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, um, Southern Saskatchewan for the South Saskatchewan Regiment, uh, Esteban Saskatchewan, um, Winnipeg-Manitoba for the Queen's Own Cameron Highlanders of Canada, as, as some examples to really showcase, you know, you know what the devastation was, sadly, on uh, those populations, and what the impact implied would be on the people back at home. And so we thought, why not try to promote the exhibition a little bit and to, you know, to get people interested in the anniversary for the 80th uh, to remember by going one step further and looking into the service files of each of the individuals and trying to pick out an address that they may have left in terms of, uh, you know, when they uh, signed their attestation form to say, yes, I, I volunteer to go serve overseas. What address are you signing up from? And so that's the one we typically took and went and tried to compare it with Canada post to determine, you know, whether or not, you know, we could find a matching address, a modern address today. And the intent of the campaign is very much, you know, this raid, this action took place 80 years ago. There's only a handful of veterans left, very few people who, you know, witnessed it firsthand, able to tell the story. And so we wanted to give Canadians a reason to maybe pause, to think about uh, what had happened uh, 80 years ago, and and to reflect on that. And we thought the postcards would be a great way for Canadians to get involved that way.
0: So... Ultimately, you tried to track down modern addresses that would correspond to those addresses uh, registered more than 80 years ago at this point, um, and then try and send a postcard saying that the gentleman, who the soldier that died that day lived where you live. Uh, it, it is It must take a lot of work. How successful were you at finding addresses now that corresponded with those ones that were registered back then?
4: So we started with a list of names primarily from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, and we added some names in throughout, and we had about 800 names. And now about 807 Canadians were killed on the day of the Dieppe raid. Um, about 100 more or so were, you know, died of wounds or died in prisoners of war camps, um, that sort of thing. And so we had about 800 names. We took that list and we actually engaged with some volunteers and asked, you know, because this is just, time-consuming effort to go through each service file and check the address, grab that address, plug it into a spreadsheet, uh, and then bring it over to, you know, the Canada Post website to check and see if there's something that's close by or that, you know, exactly matches it. And so we were very grateful to have a number of volunteers, um, uh, uh, at least a couple of them who did a lot of this work uh, to help us make sure that we could, you know, fill some mailboxes across the country.
0: So, Ultimately, how many of these did you send out, and and
4: what do they look like? So we sent out uh, 400, so about a 50 percent success rate, which actually you know was 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 pleasantly surprising uh, uh, for our researchers. And the postcards, like most postcards, are two sided. So on one side we have a poster, uh, which features uh, the poster for our "From Dieppe to Juno" exhibition commemorating the 80th anniversary of the Dieppe Raid. Uh, the postcard features a it's not a tip not a very rare image, but it it's not a typical image that you see with, in a lot of um Dieppe exhibits. It's actually an image in many of the images of the beaches after the raid but I mean, all of them pretty much were taken by german uh photographers, German army photographers. This one is one of those. it features basically um dozens. Of uh, Canadian helmets that the Canadians have clearly like taken off their their heads and put on the ground as they you know raise their arms and surrender, um, and a lot of them are tangled in a bunch of barbed wire that's kind of in the mid ground. And then in the background is a uh, immobilized uh, Churchill tank. One of the Churchill tanks. Uh, one of the first uh, times these tanks were used in action was at Dieppe, and it is sitting there on the beach. Um, kind of perpendicular uh, to the view of, of the camera which is looking out uh, uh, towards the channel and, and presumably that tank was immobilized there or at least it was parked there by the crew perhaps in that position to provide cover for the troops uh, because there was very little, um, uh, very little they could use to take cover behind uh, in that, on that open beach yeah uh, on that deadly day
0: yeah that's one of the things you know when you step set foot on that beach is just how how much of a challenge it was to embark uh, to disembark on it yes. um and, and so, so you sent these out to 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 a variety of people who lived at those addresses have you have you heard back have you have you heard from them and and how do you tell how do you explain to them what the purpose of the postcard was who lived there uh who lived yeah. where they lived
4: yeah so on the back of the postcard it says he lived where you live And it says, you know, after the Second World War broke out, insert name here, enlisted in the Canadian military from this address, a little bit of information about the raid there. And tragically, that individual was killed uh, during the raid and he was, you know, X years old. And then we explain, you know, to mark the 80th anniversary of the Dieppe Raid, the Juno Beach Centre is sending postcards to addresses across the country where these young heroes once lived. And you can learn more about the raid in the JBC's new temporary exhibition from Dieppe to Juno, and our online educational resource, Who Tells the Story of Dieppe at juneaubeach.org. And then we have um, basically our social media handles for people to use to kind of, they want to tag us in a post if they've received the card. Um, and they can email us at Juno post uh, postcards at um or call us at 905-581-5001 uh, to tell us that they've received the card. We've... Re- Received one uh, indication that we've uh, someone's received a postcard and is responding. Uh, we don't have a, a full statement from them yet, but we have received a number of really um, uh, very kind emails, uh, uh, instant messages on social media, uh, messages uh, on our answering machine at the office, about people who just are aware of the campaign now and who perhaps had a loved one who served uh, at Dieppe, whether they you know perished during the raid or whether they survived the raid. And, and they're all reaching out and, you know, <laughs> thanking us for this effort to commemorate Canada's darkest day of the Second World War 80 years right. ago. So 400 were set out about the, near the end of July, is that right? Early August? Yeah, that's right. Near the end of the July. So they should all have arrived uh, at the addresses. And so we're really keen uh, to hear back. So if you've received a postcard, we hope to hear from you. Uh, you know, you can send us an email uh, to yeah. junopostcards at junobeach.org.
0: I'll try and share that information as well when we're done. Um, where did they go? Ultimately, I mean, where did you wind up sending a lot of them to? Because 400, I gather, you mentioned uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario. Uh, where where did the
4: bulk of these 400 wind up? The bulk of them wound up in Ontario, and that reflects, I guess, perhaps the the, the, the population uh, distribution of the country. But it also, more specifically, um, reflects the fact that. Some of the units that were hardest hit at Dieppe, um, for example, the Essex Scottish Regiment from near kind of Windsor, that area, in southwestern Ontario, the um, uh, Royal Regiment of Canada in Toronto uh, also suffered very, very, very heavy casualties. I mean, we're talking like 94% of the guys who went in on the landing craft, you know, killed, wounded, or captured Um you know, hardly anybody made it back. If you made it back in, in that case, you probably never got off the landing craft in the first place um, to, from Toronto. So a big, big chunk from Toronto. Um, I think 130 of them were from Toronto. Uh, the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. Um, so uh, quite a number in Hamilton as well. Um, and then Montreal, uh, the Fusilier Mont um went in as the reserve unit. Uh, unfortunately, they, uh, were asked to reinforce failure due to kind of the fog of war. And so a heavy number from there. Out west, uh, Manitoba was the uh, province with the most postcards. So 22 went to addresses in Manitoba, um, one to British Columbia, uh, just, just the one. And that probably reflects, I mean, this isn't, it's not all 800 to 900 Canadians who were killed during the raid. So there may be more out there that we just couldn't uh, match but it reflects the fact that you know there weren't any um infantry units in particular from that province uh that were involved in this operation.
0: And I know on your website there's also a map you can look at if you want to click on where the, where the postcards went to find out so you can actually uh get more detail if you'd like. So with the 80th anniversary coming up on Friday what other what else do you have planned? The postcards obviously one part of of a broader effort to recognize the day.
4: Yes. So, I mean, the, the big thing is, is, is our exhibition from Dieppe to Juneau. Um, we're really uh, excited for actually August 20th. The museum is going to be uh, greeting a delegation from Veterans Affairs Canada. Um, obviously, the events um, uh, in France, uh, specifically at Dieppe on the 19th of August, are probably going to get a fair bit of attention and, and, and rightfully so. And we know that Veterans Affairs Canada has is bringing a group of, of veterans, uh, Second World War veterans, and I believe at least one, um df veteran uh over there for for that event and so we're looking forward to seeing uh, the images uh, uh from that event as well uh, and really we just uh we hope people check out our educational resources if you go to JunoBeach.org, um and there's a, a link to our kind of 80th anniversary content there and and you can check out uh those educational resources and other resources this program as as you've alluded to uh he lived where you live um, and we just, again, really hope that uh, Canadians uh, take a moment on Friday uh, to to spare a thought for, for those who, you know, freely gave of themselves, um, many of whom didn't come home in the case of the DEP rate uh, 80 years ago.
0: Well, it's it's a it's a lovely initiative, Alex. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you get a few more responses from those who may have received them. You never know where postcards end up sometimes, but I hope you get uh, you get more responses from those who received them to uh, to share their thoughts about living at the address because it does remind Canadians that those who died uh, in France 80 years ago uh, were just guys who lived on the live, who lived in this you know, lived on streets and in homes like we do today, right? So, thank you Absolutely. so much for your time tonight.
4: Thank you, Ben, for having us.
0: India marks the 75th anniversary of its independence from British rule this week. Prime Minister Narendra Modi spoke of the country's changing status on the world stage, long the world's largest democracy. It is increasingly becoming an economic and global powerhouse as well. While per capita income is still relatively low, it is the world's sixth largest economy, and it is the fastest growing one among major economies. It is predicted it will reach third place globally behind China and the U.S. by 2050. It's also set to become the world's most populous country, surpassing China sometime very soon, according uh, to uh, the U.N. Prime Minister Trudeau wrote uh, this week that Canada and India had a strong, long-standing, and vibrant relationship built on strong values such as democracy and people-to-people ties, with over 1.4 million people of Indian heritage calling this country home. But not all are celebrating this week there has been a crackdown on civil liberties critics say in the country since modi was elected in 2014 uh, critics of his hindu nationalist government say his government is transforming the country by rejecting the ideals of secularism tolerance respect for civil liberties championed by those who stood at the top of india as it was became independent 75 years ago Joining me now with more on this is Neelish Bose. He's an associate professor and Canada Research Chair in Global and Comparative History at the University of Victoria. Thanks so much for your time tonight.
3: Uh, thank you for having me, Ben.
0: Uh, it, it has been quite the week. I know that, in fact, it was actually a 75th anniversary year. This all started about a year ago, uh, the build-up to this date. Uh, lots to celebrate, obviously. Uh, India's undergone some, some pretty dramatic changes, uh, not just in the last 75 years, but in the last 20 years.
3: Indeed, Uh, and I would say that uh, just to take a slightly longer view, you know, India at uh, age of 75 really has been through so many different trials and tribulations, the emergency of the 1970s, various separatist movements and internal dissensions uh, from the northeast uh, to the Punjab and the west uh, before the the opening of the Indian economy in the 90s and uh, the entry of India into the global stage, I think, in the 21st century. Um, And I would say that, you know, the rise of digital technology and development and the creation of a of a digital ID system has really put India uh, into the world in in new ways. I would say also that the uh, impact of the Modi administration showcases and the various celebrations really showcase this aggressive India, Um, the lavish celebrations, the constant online nationalist uh, flag waving has really shown this turn in India, which I think is relatively New for the history of India.
0: Yeah, I was reading. Uh, I think I put this out to you when I first contacted you. I was reading uh, something last week that talked about how sort of uh, the pacifism of Gandhi is no longer the way that the country likes to see itself. That it likes to see itself as a more uh, muscular force uh, on the world stage than than what we may remember from from back in those uh, in the lead up to independence and so on.
3: Uh, yes, I would say that is something that really, if we think uh, take a longer view. Uh, at least through the 20th century, that that is a really remarkable change. Um, though India has made great strides in certain sectors, uh, in education and economic development in certain sectors, a thriving uh, banking and retail sector, um, I would say that one major radical change from the early postcolonial years is this rapid rise to an aggressive and militarized posture on the world stage, one that would probably surprise uh, individuals who were central to the anti-colonial struggles, people like Mohandas Gandhi, Maulana Azad and many others, uh, none of whom were supportive of the partition of India and none of whom would have been supportive of an aggressive uh, nationalism in the world.
0: Um, one of the things that obviously came up this week is the criticism of of sort of Hindu nationalism writ large, and, and I won't pretend to be an expert on it, I don't, uh, and also just the, the, the crackdown on dissent, that it feels like while it is a more successful and wealthier India, um, it is also a less tolerant India. I, I don't know if that's fair, but uh, I'll, I'll ask you that.
3: I would say that uh, India should not be seen in one-dimensional terms. Uh, Though, yes, I would agree with critics of the nation-state of India that both the rise of religious majoritarianism and the increasing attacks on minorities in new ways is something that has to be identified, as well as new legal measures that have identified certain uh, refugee communities and asylum seekers as more worthy of citizenship than others. This is a trend, I would say, in the last uh, 10 to 15 years that definitely needs to be identified. However, on the other hand, I would say that India has a vibrant, dynamic political culture that constantly engages the state and uh, different legal changes of the state. Uh, If we think of the farmer protests just a few years ago, as well as many protests and different kinds of engagement with the new laws about citizenship show that the vibrant dynamism of India and the diversity of India um, is still very much with us.
0: It certainly has an incredibly um, diverse and interesting media culture as well. Any I've ever, you know, it, it, it seems to have a very vibrant media culture as well, which speaks uh, to to its to its role as the world's largest democracy. It's always nice to see that it has a vibrant uh, uh, media as well, a fourth estate.
3: Absolutely. And I'd say that though the digital age brings forth all sorts of new questions, I've mentioned that there's a, a digital ID system, which for the critics of the system showcase a new kind of surveillance that the state is now, as you mentioned, this is one of the largest states in the world, about over 1.3 billion people. Um, it is also now a system that the recent Modi administration has um, implemented so that uh, goes on how uh, the most marginalized sectors of society are able to access institutions of the state um, and are able to access new institutions of microcredit and lending and banking. It is definitely a mixed record. It is not something that is only positive or negative, but I would say that India is definitely leading the way into new forms of politics that need to be identified and appreciated.
0: Um... Prime Minister Modi spoke about advances, about sort of wanting to be a developed nation uh, by the 100th anniversary. Uh, what do you think both the, you know, the challenges are there and also the the potential as well? Because it feels like there's both, like a country of that size, you feel like there's both potential and challenges in terms of continuing this advance.
3: Yes, I would say in terms of the potential and the challenges, I would start with the challenges that I think at one level are common to any Society in this context, although it is one of the largest societies that faces um, a population of this size, the inheritance of colonial practices of rule and the need to develop very quickly in a manner that uh, most societies in the West uh, have not. So those challenges bring to light uh, the environmental limits of growth, uh, the nature of the state when it's uh, allies with different um, construction projects, often affecting Indigenous populations and populations that had been marginalized by the state uh, to begin with. But on the other hand, there is great uh, potential, I think, for different kinds of growth. As I mentioned, there's great um, developments in the education sector. Uh, Private education is growing in India. Various tech sectors are growing, Uh, banking and IT as well. I think uh, taking advantage of the fact that the Globalized economy of today brings forth new kinds of questions and challenges and India's population, diversity and ability to manage all sorts uh, of challenges over these last 75 years shows that India has quite a lot to offer the world. Certainly a
0: lot to celebrate as it turns 75. I'm speaking with Neelish Bose. He's an associate professor and Canada research chair in global and comparative history at the University of Victoria. We're talking about India marking 75 years of independence uh, this week, Monday. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about India on the world stage because it's hard not to talk about. Obviously, it's a uh, prominent neighbor, Pakistan, who also celebrated 75 years of independence uh, on Sunday. And we'll talk a bit about that, but also just the role that India can take uh, on the world stage because there's tensions with China. Uh, it's going to be an interesting interesting... interesting 25 years as as India heads towards 100 uh, as it takes its place, uh, a more prominent place uh, in global politics. We'll be back with that. Nilesh Bose is with us this half hour. He's an associate professor and Canada research chair in the Global and Comparative History Department at the University of Victoria. We're talking about India marking 75 years of independence on Monday, a a big day, a big celebration in India as well. Just some of both uh, what what there is to celebrate and what critics say there is to to be leery of as well when it comes to the 75th anniversary. Um, Nilesh, on on the foreign stage uh, i guess you can't start talking about india and foreign affairs without talking about pakistan and partition and and the ongoing fight over kashmir and so on um where does that i mean where, where did that sit this week cuz both pakistan and india obviously celebrated 75 years um and there were lots of very heartwarming stories about reunions and so on um what what impact has that had on both these countries since since back in 1947
3: Yes, I think that uh, one of the sad truths that we have to confront is that though there is a lot to celebrate um, for independence, there is also uh, a lot to identify as shared between India and Pakistan, unfortunately, with uh, very sad and tragic stories. And hopefully through the identification of histories uh, that often were hidden in the past, we might be able to move into a different era. I would just say that uh, the history of the partition, which is a vast history, I could just say briefly that uh, the British Empire right after World War II, which was massively in debt and aimed to speed up their operations of exit, um, created a very hurried and chaotic system uh, by which they left. And many of the issues confronting India in the late colonial period were not resolved. Issues about minorities and power-sharing, and so small acts of violence often uh, emerged in the early part of 1947 uh, before partition happened, sometimes out of fear, uh, sometimes out of uh, cycles of retribution. At the same time, there was a lack of British imperial capacity to deal with violence. And one of the issues that we now face that India and Pakistan and now Bangladesh, uh, which was formed out of a civil war between West and East Pakistan in 1971, is the condition of people being defined primarily by their religious identities. This is something that was introduced in the colonial period and something we now live with. Some groups are majorities and some are permanent minorities. This created scores of refugees in India, Pakistan, and now Bangladesh, and this legacy of minority communities experiencing persecution helplessness, dispossession. This appears in various forms in the present in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. And I think that amidst the celebrations, this fact should never be forgotten.
0: It always strikes me that that the relationship between India and Pakistan never seems to improve much. If anything, it seems like they don't talk much at all when it comes to some of the more uh, pressing issues such as Kashmir. We've seen uh, very little movement there of late. Uh, Do you see, as we head towards 100 years, do we see this worsening? I mean, these are two nuclear powers, obviously. Uh, Do we still see this worsening or is there any chance, do you think, for some sort of breakthrough as we move on?
3: I think un- unfortunately I don't see it uh changing from the path that it has been taking recently which in- is not all uh one dimensional but with India um I think making more and more strides to control parts of Kashmir in the ways that they want to to provide uh, a space for Indians from all over India to enter Kashmir to own land in Kashmir and to claim Kashmir in a certain way. Um, this direction, I think, this trend will continue. And then I think Pakistan and India's militarization, unfortunately, seems to only be growing. However, I think, as you mentioned, with more and more media and more and more access to how uh, the world is changing, I think there's much more information about Kashmir that is accessible throughout the world. And uh, also, how uh, members of the Kashmir diaspora are engaging with Kashmir is becoming more and more accessible uh, to the rest of the world, which might lead to uh, changes within uh, India and Pakistan.
0: And one can't talk about that region now without talking about what seems to be or what could well be a very intense regional rivalry between uh, potentially two of the three largest economies and the two most populous countries in the world, uh, China and India. Uh, And we've seen a bit of of tension there uh, of late, um, how do you see that developing, and where is it now, and how do you see it progressing in the in the near future?
3: Yes, I think that so China and India and, and Pakistan, on and the question of Kashmir, have, since the beginning of a post-colonial South Asia, have always um, been involved in a site of contestation over certain parts of Kashmir. That does not seem to be changing. I think what is changing is how India is starting to uh, point itself in new directions within the Indian Ocean, um, and it sees itself as uh, a leader, an alternative to China throughout the world in parts of Africa, in parts of the Middle East, uh, and potentially in Sri Lanka. And I think that India is trying to position itself in new ways throughout the world, not only within its own neighborhood, but elsewhere. And this may have implications down the road when we get to uh, 100 years uh, the presence of Indians uh, throughout the world uh, in the Middle East and in Africa has taken on various shapes in its vast history. And I think it might be that India is trying to pivot itself in different directions as it moves forward.
0: Yeah, We saw that a bit, of course, with the war in Ukraine, where, where India has been, uh, has, has been trying to, to, to march to its, I mean, at least try to, to uh, walk a slightly different path, if it, to, to, be, to be fair. and It's interesting to watch. What have you made of that?
3: I think there are a few ways to think about it. Uh, India, uh, like many other uh, nation states who became independent in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, who tried to chart um, their own non-aligned path forward, um, has traces of this uh, way of looking to the to the future, not uh, following the United States directly, not following China, not following any one major uh, world power. There are shades of this, but then there are also now um, uh, uh, histories and intentions likely of India aiming to create a new kind of uh, perhaps Indian uh, power sphere in parts of the Indian Ocean, parts of the Middle East, and parts of Central Asia. India's official stance uh, in various uh, wars that have been led by uh, Western powers has been to stay neutral, to chart a third path, Uh, Many of the critics of India see India as building its own soft power throughout the world and I think we shall see perhaps when we get to the 100th year anniversary how that might play out in places like Africa, Middle East and Sri Lanka. Well,
0: it'll certainly be interesting because obviously India does have something very different from China to offer other parts of the world, particular places where they also have a large diaspora as well. And it'll be, uh, that shall be a, an interesting state competition to watch in the future. Anilish Bose, thank you so much for your time tonight. We could talk about this for much longer, but hopefully we can come back and talk about India uh, and the region again soon.
3: Thank you very much for
0: having me. <laughs> President Biden finally signed his sweeping tax health and climate bill into law this afternoon after more than a year of very fraught negotiations. It wasn't quite what it had started out to be, but it is pretty significant. Uh, so perhaps the name, the Inflation Reduction Act, may make the eyes of most Canadians glaze over, but it shouldn't, and here's why. The new law includes $369 billion U.S. in investments in climate and energy policies, and Canada may stand to benefit from that big boost in spending, in particular It establishes preferential tax treatment for electric vehicles assembled not just in the U.S., but anywhere in North America, so here too. It also provides money for the components that go into those EVs or go into the batteries that fuel those electric vehicles, along with other things that these critical minerals, as they're called, are used for. Uh, Now, right now, of course, a lot of those critical minerals used in batteries and elsewhere are mined, of course, in China, and that is an issue. For the US and for Canada, you can see why countries uh, would want to untie some of those binds. So, Canada, with relative mineral wealth, could see an impetus and investment uh, in mining for those critical minerals in this country. There are some ifs. Will Canada's regulatory framework stand in the way? And is China's presence in mining those minerals in this country already a factor as well? Well, joining me with more on this is Mark Agnew. He's Senior Vice President of Policy at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for your time tonight.
2: Thanks for having me on, Ben.
0: Uh, I know many Canadians will look at news of this uh, Inflation Reduction Act and all that it contains and be somewhat daunted by what how it may impact us. But uh, there are some opportunities in here for Canadian uh, businesses in transportation, clean transportation rather, and others. Uh, how should we be viewing the opportunities that could lie within this very sizable uh, legislation?
2: Yeah, so I think, as always, when you look at the U.S. legislative process, it's a fair bit more convoluted, uh, you know, than ours. I mean, you know, yes, we do have, um, you know, two, uh, you know, chambers within our parliamentary system. But, um, you know, kind of with how we are with, you know, partly with uh, the House of Commons and you know relative solidarity within party caucuses uh, bills can get through through a much more straightforward process I think on, on our side of the border. so I think your listeners can be forgiven for uh, you know finding it a bit dizzying to try to navigate through all of uh, what's been passed with mm-hmm. this most recent bill in the, the US Congress um, when you look at though you know some of the landmark pieces uh, of this that uh, really pertain to Canada I, I think you know the electric vehicles piece it's fair to say um, you know could have some fairly good implications uh, for Canada given they're now looking at these tax credits on the basis of North American production content percents rather than just U.S. production content. So I think, you know, that's definitely a great development and very much aligns with what we have here on offer in Canada with our natural resources, assuming we can get the products uh, out of the ground. And of course, these critical mineral uh, products are just, you know, they have a wide range of applications. It's not just about the automotive sector. And so I think this hopefully will help to open up the the opportunities for Canadian companies uh, in other, you know, applications as well. Of course, anytime you talk about the United States, though, and national security, um, there's always going to be that sort of tinge of protectionism. So certainly, you know, the wind that we saw most recently, is not something that we can take for granted.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, but I imagine one of the things obviously the Americans are looking to do here is diversify away from a very heavy reliance on China when it comes to these critical minerals. And it makes sense of them, of course, for them to look north, uh, and that we might be included as part of that uh, so-called security umbrella when it comes to these minerals. Is that the case?
2: I think so. When you look at the list of natural um, resources Canada, which is our our federal department that oversees, you know, our sort of, you know, government policy towards, um, you know, oil and gas, the mining sector, forestry, etc. They have published a list of just over 31 products uh, that we have here in, in Canada. And I alluded to earlier about the wide range of applications that these goods have. And when we typically talk about them as the Canadian Chamber, we'll say there's sort of three, you know, broad categories. You have consumer goods. So, So, you know, laptops, computers, um, you know, you know, automobiles, I suppose, could even go into that as well. There's also industrial applications. So clean technology, um, you know, solar panels, those types of things, and then also defense and security applications. And so when we talk about what canada can you know do with our products there's really an opportunity to step up to the plate and provide a reliable uh, and also ethical source of uh, these products and also a more stable source too that allies can come and look to instead of looking to more unreliable markets to to source these products for um, again the range of consumer defense and industrial applications <laughs>
0: How are we advancing so far on that front? Because I know for a long time, uh, especially when I was working in Beijing, for instance, you know, the idea of who was producing uh, these minerals, they can be quite environmentally dangerous. Who was producing these minerals was not really a big issue. There was certainly no, uh, you know, sometimes it was talked about geopolitically or, you know, security wise, but not in the way we talk about it these days. Uh, how far has Canada advanced over the past few years in recognizing uh, that there needs to be diversification and that we could be part of the solution?
2: Certainly progress hasn't been as fast as, you know, the business community in the Canadian Chamber would like it to see. Um you know, there's been talk about a critical mineral strategy for some time that the federal government would produced to really kind of focus the minds of, uh, you know, various government departments in Ottawa to make action happen to, you know, get simply more products out of the ground. Um, we did see a, a fairly noticeable step forward with the federal budget that was tabled in April of this year. Um, roughly, uh, I think it was about $3.8 billion were committed uh, in that budget to help, you know, kickstart the industry. And so certainly we've seen Um, that at a very kind of macro level. And you've also seen um, some of the more downstream applications recently with the government providing support also to uh, the automotive sector in particular to have those, you know, electric vehicles, you know, future of automotive production happening here in Canada. Um, There's a lot of work left to do. And really, as much as the downstream stuff gets attention because people can relate to an electric vehicle, there's probably a lot more work that has to happen on the upstream side to make sure that we're actually getting these products out of the ground. And there's a, you know, host of measures that can be done to help achieve that goal so for instance ensuring that we don't have regulatory barriers that keep extractive projects from you know going into operation ensuring that there's infrastructure so that these mines which are in you know remote and and rural locations in canada can actually be accessed uh, you know by companies Um, so those are just two examples of of things that we're hoping the government can do to help accelerate this forward because certainly when you talk to our um, partners around the world they want these products now. They don't want them. Well, I'm sure they'll need them in five to ten years, but really there's there's a short-term acute need uh, to get Canadian production um, happening at a much higher level.
0: And I understand there are some tax credits within this new American legislation uh, that may also provide an incentive.
2: Yeah. So when you look at um, the way that the American legislation is, um, is structured, and I should say, you know, full credit to, um, you know, Alex Panetta and, and the CBC who had an excellent piece um, on this earlier today. Certainly, I think there is good reason to be optimistic that there will be sort of, you know, trickle down effects that we can see north of the border. We have such tightly integrated supply chains that um, any sort of, you know, manufacturing or or processing demand for these products, I think will create opportunities for Canada to provide them to American businesses. So I think that's one tangible way that the legislation could again have kind of these positive trickle down effects uh, for the Canadian economy.
0: I'm speaking with Mark Agnew. He's the Senior Vice President of Policy at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. We're talking about uh, Joe Biden signing into law today, the Inflation Reduction Act. It is a huge piece of legislation with many, many components, but one of them uh, is to try and accelerate uh, the production of electric vehicles and also find supplies of of the necessary components for those, um, critical minerals, as they're called, uh, but also could provide some incentive for Canada to try to be that supplier, or at least try to make up uh, or help the Americans wean themselves off uh, heavily reliance on China when it comes uh, to these minerals. When we come back, uh, the Americans are not alone. The German Chancellor is here next week. I understand that Germany has also been looking to Canada perhaps for a more reliable supply of of these products. They are obviously a huge automaker themselves. And also just a bit about China because you know Chinese companies have a lot of expertise when it comes to these critical minerals and that expertise and their search for other areas to produce has certainly Canada has certainly not gone unnoticed to, to those companies. We'll be back with that. Mark Agnew is with us this half hour. He's Senior Vice President of Policy at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. We're talking about uh, the Inflation Reduction Act that Joe Biden signed into law today, the US President. Lots in there, but one of the things that could impact Canada is a focus on on clean energy, on clean transportation and the components that go into it. We've been talking about how Canada, uh, certainly upstream when it comes to producing some of these critical minerals that are needed for production of these things and other stuff, uh, can be done here, that there is an opportunity for Canada here. The German Chancellor's in town now next week, uh, Mark. And I know that they too have been looking to Canada, uh, perhaps as a supplier for these sorts of products as well.
2: Yeah. So maybe if I just step back a little bit and think about this, um, you know, from, from the European perspective, um, you know, we're in, I think, genuinely, um, you know, one of the most difficult periods from a security standpoint since the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, uh, you know, since, since the, the end of the Cold War. And when you look at where the pressure is coming from, um, you know, on countries to uh, to increase defense spending, sort of the NATO 2% target is something that is uh, is really held up as, as a benchmark. And so for your listeners that aren't familiar to this um nato countries have essentially committed to saying that two percent of their um you know uh you know gdp or you know, two percent of their economy will be spent towards uh defense um you know defense defense needs and you know canada i think we've fair to say increased defense spending, but we're a fair bit of a ways behind where our NATO allies expect us to be. So where this links in, I think, to the critical minerals piece is that in a world where we don't really have a short-term pathway to meet our defense spending commitment requirements, I think critical minerals is a way for us to show to allies that, you know, we're serious about our contribution to the collective security of the Western alliance. And, you know, the German uh, chancellor visiting next week, as you pointed out, um, critical minerals is absolutely going to be A critical part uh, of that conversation, and I think that you know, in the context of where you know Europe is trying to you know, like us, make a green energy transition, um, they're trying to diversify uh, away from these unstable markets. Um, You know, Canada certainly has a a lot to offer, and I think you're going to hear some of that from the German Chancellor next week.
0: And and just just on a related matter, obviously, LNG is a big issue there too, as they try to wean themselves not only off uh, you know Chinese critical minerals, uh, but also Russian energy.
2: Yeah and if you look at you know what what are the barriers that we face uh here in Canada I, I mean in some ways we're our own worst enemies um you know the the regulatory delays and the inability to you know get projects built and, and running um is 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 not something that is You know, uh, outside of our control, it actually is very much within our control as Canadians. And so, um, you know, hopefully, you know, the German Chancellor is going to be able to underscore that point that can help, you know, recatalyze action here in Canada and underscore that, you know, we not only have the capability and and the ability to help our allies, but actually in many ways, we have a moral responsibility to do so, too. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Back to sort of the security issue and the critical minerals. I mean, China has long time dominated this market, and it does uh, see it as crucial to their own national security. Uh, They've also been looking to Canada because obviously they have the mining expertise here to a certain extent. They also, for quite a while, had the money to put into these projects if needed, and mining industries, uh, mining companies in Canada were certainly looking for investment. Um, What is China's footprint in this business now in Canada, and how worrisome is it?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, there's been a growing, you know, a growing interest. And, you know, there was a piece in the Globe and Mail last week about, you know, the increased, you know, footprint we've seen over the years from, you know, Chinese companies in the critical minerals, Canadian critical minerals, you know, space. When you look at, you know, where the security, you know, risks are, certainly having more foreign actors that intertwine, you know, politics and economics, you know, it creates a mix that I think a lot of allies look to Canada and, you know, sort of are wondering about. You know, you know who, who controls the products, and you know what are the risks involved uh, with it. We have legislation here in Canada called the Investment Canada Act that gives the government a fairly high degree of discretion uh, to block foreign acquisitions on national security grounds. And I think in the current geopolitical context, um, it, it's good for the government to have that flexibility in some ways to be able to take a take a step back and say, well, you know, is this acquisition by a foreign company, whether they're from China or from another country, something that could prove to be detrimental to our, you know, long term you know, security interests and those of our allies um, as well.
0: Have we been using it enough? Have we been cognizant enough about what's going on in our own backyard?
2: Well, it, it's hard to assess accurately whether, you know, the question of have you been using it too much have been using it, not enough, um, because the government certainly has access to a whole host of uh, you know security and intelligence information that I don't have access to. So it's difficult to opine on that. But you know to kind of sidestep the question a little bit, um, I think it's fair to say that you know it has not been used uh, you know very much. I mean certainly transactions have uh, you know have been stopped, and you know we'll never really know how many transactions um, have decided not to progress because maybe there was a signal that they wouldn't be approved. That's not something that we don't necessarily. Really have the, the firm data around. But I think certainly, um, you know, it's fair to say that in the current geopolitical environment, it's something that the government should be, you know, taking a very serious and, and thoughtful look at to how it can be used. And, and of course, there's a balancing act involved because we, as a small, you know, global economy, we need to attract foreign investment to get these products, uh, you know, uh, um, to get these sort of projects more correctly, uh, you know, going. So it's how do you balance the national security interests with also the investment certainty that companies need to see.
0: Yeah, as I mentioned, you don't want to shut out all Chinese companies all the time for any reason, uh, because they do have expertise in this field and they do have uh, the money to invest as well. So we want to kickstart this uh, industry in Canada. It is a delicate balance. Um, are, Are we close enough to walking it or are we still just figuring it out?
2: I think we are still figuring out. Um, it, it is a rapidly shifting geopolitical environment, uh, and hopefully that the investments um, that the government proposed in the federal budget earlier this year uh, will be able to kickstart more of a local critical economies. Uh, you, you know, uh, sorry, a lo- kickstart a local, you know, critical economy. Sorry, mm-hmm. a local critical mineral economy here, uh, and getting more Canadians and Canadian companies involved uh, in the sector. Absolutely.
0: Well, certainly, if they feel like there's uh, need and money to be made and support, uh, you'd imagine that investment might be a little easier to come by.
2: Yeah, and I think that's precisely what these tax credits are are meant to do is they're meant to incentivize and and de-risk also, um, you know, the the financial viability of these projects for companies, because they often are times in these remote communities where there's a lot of upfront capital investment that's required. And so having the federal government come to the table with some cash, um, it helps the economics of these projects make more sense. And, you know you might argue in some cases, well, you know, should there be any government investment at all in them? And, and you know, the standpoint that, um, you know, we have as the Canadian Chamber is that because these projects serve such a critical national security function, um, the government should be bringing financial support to the table to get these products off the ground, uh, sorry, to get these projects off the ground, and again, make sure that the economics behind them make sense.
0: Mark Agnew, thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me on.